0: Hello and welcome to Happy Hour on the Fringe. My name is Raina Searles and I'm the Marketing Manager at Fringe Arts. In the wake of the global coronavirus pandemic, many of us, especially those in arts organizations, have had to reflect on ways to do our work despite dramatic social disruptions. One thing Fringe Arts is excited to continue doing is connecting our artists and community partners with all of you listening through this podcast. We're diving into how artists are responding to the pandemic, the intersection between art and public health, and how community partners are working to meet the specific needs of their constituents. You can learn more about what we're doing at Fringe Arts by visiting fringearts.com/backslash/covid-19. And as always, enjoy our conversations with some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence.
1: Hey, everyone. Tanara here. I wanted to pop in before the episode starts just to contextualize what you all are about to listen to. So originally, I sat down with Maori Carmel Holmes, Danny Orendorf, and Ann Ishii to talk about their coalition, Philly Arts for Black Lives Matter. That episode is actually already up, and I encourage you all to take a listen. However, technology failed us that day, and Maori's side of the conversation did not upload. So she and I scheduled a separate time to dig deeper into these themes, just the two of us, which is what you'll be hearing today. You can listen to this conversation on its own, but it does scaffold off of some subjects we discussed in the previous episode, so I lovingly nudge you all to the first part before you listen to this. In any case, I want to thank everyone for listening to our work and tuning into the thoughts of some of the most imaginative people on this plane of existence. Enjoy this conversation with myself and Maori about the intersection of nonprofit culture with white supremacy. So Mayori, thank you again so much for joining me a second time after we had these technical difficulties in the last section. Um, I want to make sure that our listeners hear from you something specific that you had mentioned when we originally recorded, which was about um, the relationship between your work with this open letter and then BLM as an organization. So if you want to just clarify real quick for folks, that would be really helpful.
2: Sure. Um, I just wanted to flag that it, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter is, of course, um, you you know, I think becoming the name of this long (laughs) 400 year journey for, um, civil, uh, and human rights for Black people, uh, in the U.S. Um, and so it has become, it is both uh, the term of the moment, but also the name of official organizations. And so, um there are um um black lives matter chapters in several cities including philadelphia um but it is also um the it being a hashtag and being a name um you know our project is in support of the cause but i just wanted to be really careful that we were not affiliated with the black lives matter chapter in philadelphia not to disassociate ourselves but also not to misrepresent in any way.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank you for that clarification. Um, So we spoke a little bit as a group about the way that nonprofits participate in these processes of limited resources and scarcity mentality, et cetera. I'd love to hear from you specifically about what ways you see nonprofit arts and culture organizations as perhaps perpetrators of or upholders of these larger systems of white supremacy.
2: Hmm. Um. Perhaps that's a really big question to it's ask. It's a massive question, um, and it's one <laughs> that, you know, it, it's not just about white supremacy, right? It's also about patriarchy and misogyny and about, uh, you know, I think, like, all of the intersectional things that keep the majority of people under, you know, <laughs> to use a term from the 60s, like, the thumb of the man, right? Like, I think there's some... Uh, there's so much going on in that question that is not able to be answered uh, succinctly. But what I will try to say is that um, I'm not an expert on uh, nonprofit industrial complex problems, right? Like, I know that they exist. Mm-hmm. I have um, worked in nonprofits um, for about 15 years or so. And so I have some sense of their structure, but I know there are actual scholars, you know, of course, we talk about um, the layers of um, problems that exist. And so I just want to say, preface it with that that I'm not an expert in that area. Um, But I do know um, that the nonprofit structure financially and management-wise is not necessarily set up to effectively change our society, right? And so I think many of us find ourselves working in this space because we want to work in the arts, we want to work in pursuit of social justice or social welfare, um, or philanthropy, you know, or many of these these fields that on the surface, um, have good intention. Um, and we don't want to work in, you know, say, corporate America, you know, or the financial (laughs) industries or something like that. Although those industries also are capable of doing good, right? We know that, but there also is a way in which they're all part of the same system. And it is naive or a huge mistake to think that working in nonprofits means you're not participating in capitalism or or that you're not participating in, um, perpetuating, uh, Capitalism and the things that go with it, including white supremacy, right? Like that is that is a fallacy. Um, So, um, (laughs) I think sort of thinking about scarcity mentality um, and nonprofits on a local level, but also not just local. um, One of the things that has become baked into the structures is that um, I think many people who pursue these fields of work. Um, earlier on, you know, 60 years ago or so, right, where people Mm -hmm. maybe set up nonprofits because they had family money, you know, or they set up nonprofits to funnel their family money or, you know, because they didn't have to take a job to pay the bills, it was a job to fulfill something else. And that has widely, that's widely divergent now. People, this is a, this is a, you know, multi-billion dollar industry just like any other. Um mm-hmm. but there's I think just a lot of clouds around um I'm sorry, <laughs> I just feel like this is so long-winded, but there's there's so many ways that people enter the field. And I think right. there has been a tradition, I guess the shortest way of saying this, particularly let's let's just talk about museums. There's been a way mm. that museums have become um a place where wealthy people go to work and don't expect to be paid very much, right?
1: Interesting. I, I did not know that that was the context. I mean, I, I
2: don't, I don't know how that happened, but that is what it looks like. <laughs> and I know that uh-huh. is the same for public radio, right? Like, so uh-huh. these are two fields that I think we many of us acknowledge are public goods. They are spaces for the masses to participate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in culture, and then they are populated and staffed largely by people of means. Who, who who maybe don't need to be paid, right? Like, I think that is, that is a tradition. Um, yeah. But today, people want to work in those fields who don't come from those backgrounds and are, you know, forcing these institutions to consider why is it okay, um, you know, for, um, at, let's say, an assistant curator at a major museum to be paid you know, barely living wage, right? Like, right. like you know, $36,000 or something like that in a city like Philadelphia. That do, That is not, um, that doesn't make sense for someone who also is assumed to have a master's degree and who's assumed, you know what I mean? Who's walking mm-hmm. in with debt <laughs> because if they don't come from a certain background, they've had to pay for school. They're walking in, needing to get an apartment. They're, you know, all the things- right. And you can quickly see how that is not enough money, right? And so there has to be other kinds of support to um, keep that person dressed in the proper way and keep that person, you know, um, socializing in the proper way so that they can socialize with board members and they can socialize with, um, you know, their peers and their directors and things like that. And that kind of setup is, you know, rife in the arts specifically, Mm -hmm. Um, and I still feel like I'm not answering your question. Cause I'm just, I think I hadn't really like thought about it. Um, I mean, I think about it all the time, but I hadn't thought about it in a really crisp way to have like my talking points. So I apologize for
1: that. Um, no apologies necessary. It's a huge question, a right? Huge and it's question. kind of, and it's a leading question. I will also say that because I, I personally strongly believe that the relationship between nonprofit culture and, and white supremacy is like a circle. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I want to acknowledge that it's also just like, you know, I, I want to just spark this conversation because I think it's really important.
2: Um, so, I mean, and, and I, I realize I'm not even answering about white supremacy. So let me leave the sort of financial piece alone. But if you <laughs> want to think about Um, specifically white supremacy and nonprofit culture, there also is this legacy of savior projects, right? Right. And so there are several organizations that operate um, on the basis of taking care of this, something that I've thought about for a long time, the sort of needy Negroes, right? Mm -hmm. And so if your organization is serving needy Negroes, however that turns out, and their affiliates, right? Like, needy Negroes and then their affiliates. And so that could be a youth program that could also, you know, that can easily also become immigrants, that can also easily become teen moms. Whatever it is, that is a way to raise money. That is a way to justify, um, you know, your organization's existence. And that Mm -hmm. um, funders um, make a decision about which needy Negroes they're interested in. And then organizations find themselves basically pivoting their work every five to seven years to the whims of the funders, right. Which is wholly Mm not just, and also incredibly toxic. It makes for these organizations to always be sort of like dancing for the funders and pivoting their work so that they can always be um, trendy (laughs) or worthy of funding. And if you show up um, and this is very personal to me, I have been running an organization that is focused on Black people and Black cultural production. And if you don't show up and sort of share, um, you know, the woes of your organization and how needy you are and how sad you are, um, they they don't know what to do with you. It's almost like you, if you don't demonstrate yeah. that, um, if you don't demonstrate the need in a particular way, it's not that there isn't a need. Of course, we all need funding to do our work. Um, but you right. need to be desperate almost, you know, like there isn't a way to show up as a whole person or to show up, you know, well-resourced. Right. I've had people say to me, like, everything looks really good. It doesn't seem like you need my money. And I'm like, why shouldn't it look good? <laughs> you know what I mean? Why
1: shouldn't it feel good yeah. to attend this event? Why does it have to be? Well, I don't that it looks is. good because there is money. Like money allows us to, to like exhibit and, and. Parade our resources and the accomplishments that we have in our work. And so, like, how do you think it got to look good? You know, <laughs> like, right. Or how does it continue to look good, also? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, mean, yeah I, mean, I, think- I think I'll just be- go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh I just wanted to clarify that like for me like I know that you sort of like put away the the financial part of the conversation and I I realized that like the statement that not that nonprofit arts culture and white supremacy as a circle is can can feel pretty inflammatory to some people but I think what what I meant more was that the relationship that, that nonprofit culture, specifically in arts and and culture sector, but not exclusively, the relationship it has to finances and to funding exactly what you're saying, and how funding is so connected to capitalism and how capitalism is so predicated on um, systems of white supremacy existing, like that is the circle to me, like that's the snake eating its own tail. Um, And I mean, you you've just talked about it specifically and how we how we make ourselves appealing how nonprofits make themselves appealing to people who want to feel good about what they're doing without thinking about the systems in place there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and the nonprofits themselves replicate this behavior. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. there's there's just, again, there's no way to really get into all the nuances of it, but, you know, we behave as if there aren't enough resources. And this is the, probably the biggest thing I want to say. We act as if there aren't enough resources Mm -hmm. when there are. And so then we're competitive mm. with one another, you know, organizationally. People often don't share um, data, they don't share salary structures, they don't share mm-hmm. many things um, for fear that they have to hold on to it, right? Like that's what capitalism produces—it's mm-hmm. sort of lack of transparency and a lack of um, camaraderie because you feel like, well, I have to hold on to this for my organization. And my project, and so in some ways that makes sense because you're if you're doing work that is necessary, which most of us are doing. You feel like you've got to protect mm-hmm. that at all costs when that's actually not necessarily mm-hmm. the case, right? Like um, there is no lack. I'm 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 so tired of hearing people talk about that. You know, the resources are limited and this and that, and it's like that's actually factually incorrect. It's they're being misdirected, right? <laughs> but there are a ton of resources right. right, right, right,
1: right.
2: Um, and so it's yeah. interesting. I mean, I'm really challenged. I think when we were talking about in our original conversation, um, speaking of scarcity mentality as well, the fact when I found out that the budget from the city for the arts in this city is only $4 million, which is the budget, you know, of a small nonprofit. <laughs> you know, I was very, mm-hmm. very shocked that that's all that the city has reserved for the cultural production you know with the first museum the first art school the first music school i mean we could go on and on about the mm-hmm. sort of cultural output of philadelphia now and that that's
1: all the city mm-hmm. is is putting forth it's just shocking to me and you had mentioned the last time we spoke that this this was a shock to you because you were coming from other cities where that wasn't the case is that true um maybe i misheard you but like is that is this like a Incredibly, de- like <laughs> deviant, um, divergent uh, example of a city budget to arts funding, and compared to other major cities in, in the United States.
2: Well, I mean, it definitely in comparison to New York and Los Angeles, like we know that just because of the recent populations. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. um, I um, am not a hundred percent sure what the budgets are of the other cities. So, I I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to high school in Atlanta, and undergrad in DC. Mm-hmm. My understanding. I don't know for sure what those budgets are, but mm-hmm. I know I knew that those cities had arts offices, right? Like there were in city mm-hmm. hall um, in Atlanta, it's called city hall East. You know, there were actual sort of cabinet level commissioners, you know, um, mm-hmm. like Tom Finkler in New York, right? Like who report to the mayor who have real power and have real influence on um, funding and also, you know, how the arts Policy gets made in the city, and it just until Nutter brought in uh, Gary Steuer and established, you know, OACCE, whatever it stands for. Um, you know, we didn't have that in Philadelphia. The cultural fund mm-hmm. was an aside, um, but there was no arts czar, if you will, which just seems ridiculous, particularly in the city. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we should have had it a hundred years ago. Um, so it just mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was shocking to me, and the the number is shocking. Um, and even with the current office, I mean, I've been really, really amazed. Um, and I, I, this is an unpopular thing, but I'll say, you know, I have not seen what the creative economy office has done at all. So, you know, in some ways when I was, when people were like, well, that office is going to be cut. I was like, well, you know, I don't know what they do. I totally get what the cultural fund Mm -hmm. does and know that they need to continue because they fund my organization and they fund a a lot of organizations in the city. And, you know, I think to the extent that they can participate in advocacy and policy setting, but that's not of course their mission. Their mission is to, um, to direct these funds, but I am not clear about what the cultural economy office does, um, and what their value has been. Um, and maybe they're too new, you know, maybe they need more time. Um, but, um, yeah, I've just been really wanting to, to, yeah, <laughs> just wishing that we had a way more robust um, uh, office in place because of what, what we do. I mean, that's why people come to Philadelphia. By and large, it's for the arts. Yeah. That's what people know about the city. It's the arts. It is not, you know, Comcast. People don't even know Comcast is based here. I mean, it's just sort of like,
1: I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, I think this point that you don't know what the office does is it speaks way more to the attitude that um, the that city hall has about that arts will just happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think like I've worked with the office of arts, culture and creative economy before. So I know that they um, have a really strong hand in anything that is considered like public art, obviously that is like coming from the city um, in a way of like connecting Um, even if it's just um, as, I don't love this word, but even as passive as like walking past installations um, like that, that's very much what their focus is connecting Philadelphia to public art. And the problem then is that there is this perception that it's just appears and that there isn't a team of really hardworking people who believe in the mission of public art for everyone Mm -hmm. that is making it happen. And so then to get rid of the entire office there's an expectation that that's actually not going to affect the amount of art that happens in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And something that I've like always struggled with is like, you can take away arts funding and art will still happen. Like I'm not trying to say that like, that there will be no more art in Philly because we know that that's not true but it is you know it is a huge slap in the face for people who understood their role in our community as like being um actively welcomed and and encouraged by the city of Philadelphia like we want artists to live and stay and work here um, because it matters to us and like the arts are a human right um, and yeah, so it's, it's utterly ridiculous to that, that, that like that there is not, there, there is no acknowledgement of the ramifications of getting rid of any arts funding in the, um, in the city hall budget to $0, like that, that won't drastically inf- affect our sector. And then by extension, you, you know, coming back to sort of why you and I are in conversation with each other, um, the way that art can then help dismantle these systems of oppression and how we need art to help imagine alternative futures, essentially. Yeah. Um, one more question I wanted to ask, and this is perhaps a good place for us to like land um, before our conversation is over. Um, so talking a little bit about the intersections of arts and culture organizations uh, white supremacy, the current uh, the current attention or spotlight that is being shown on work that Black Lives Matter has been doing for years. Um, I, I'm wondering if you know of or if you believe in um, alternative organizational structures that um, might help advance anti-racism and anti-oppression missions. Um, Because I think that there... And and so then maybe actually the question I'm asking, let me rephrase, is do you believe that it's possible for an existing nonprofit that perhaps does not have anti-racism or anti-oppression in its framework to then course correct and transition into an organization that is like fighting for this in their every breath? Or is it actually a process of completely disbanding these organizations and reforming into these alternative models?
2: Did that question make I any don't sense? Think that's a, the, it, it makes sense. I think there's no binary. Mm. You know, I don't think there's like an either or. I think that mm-hmm. some organizations are going to need to, this is not going to be quick work for one. This is not something that happens after you read, you know, Beverly DeAngelis and then figure out, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, we're anti-racist now, you know, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. I mean, that impetus is also rooted in capitalism, right? Like we're always in a rush. We think that there's a way that we can consume enough to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And that is not how this works, right? So I think that say every single organization in the city, every nonprofit arts institution, committed to doing deep reflection and analysis and listening and, you know, all the things and, uh, c- you know, created strategic plans, you right. know, say people got consultants and created anti-racism strategic plan right. that took them um, to some kind of shift over the next five years. Mm-hmm. It's going to look different like strategic plans do for every single organization. So now, some organizations may decide, you know, that they need to disband you know, perhaps the Penn Museum is like we actually cannot exist because we perpetuate, you know, mm-hmm. X, X, and X by holding these objects. So we're going to get rid of these objects, and thus we'll close, right? And then I'm not picking on them, but it just came to me. So totally. like, something like that um, could be possible. Whereas another institution, you know, and again, this is not a specific example, but say a contemporary art institution that does not collect, they can have their next show be very different, right? Like so I think it just depends on the nature of the organizations and how honest and truthful they want to be. I mean, this will be painful. Yeah. This is literally and I I know people are hitting people over the head with this, but, you know, it's really older than sixteen nineteen. But if we want to start with sixteen nineteen <laughs> and 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 enslaved Africans arriving, you know, at Penns Landing, right? Like if we want to start there for Philadelphia, um If we want to think about, um, actually, I think it's 1622, but whatever, you know, if we want to start with um, the history of enslavement in this country and what that has produced, that has definitely been a 400 year project Mm -hmm. It is not going to be solved um, in 30 days, right? right? Um, And so there's just, I think it it really is going to be um, different. Um, I think there are seats that people should be willing to give up. Mm Um, you know, when people talk about wanting to make room for Black and brown leadership, some of that means people will have to leave their seats. But that doesn't mean everyone has to leave their seats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I've noticed, the language that I really appreciate that's been emerging um, is that there isn't, we, we not only need allies, we need accomplices, mm-hmm. right? There isn't any social justice that has been advanced in this country that was not in participation. Like Black people didn't make themselves free. White people have been a part of this. Just like women don't get liberation without men's participation. This doesn't happen unless everyone is committed to this. And so getting people on board and getting people caught up (laughs) um, and educated will take a while. Mm -hmm. And it may be the position of arts institutions to help with that education. Um, Uh You know, we think about the, uh, and they're not the only one, they weren't the only one, but I know that oftentimes in, um, acknowledging rights for LGBT folks, you know, people think about like this happened after Will and Grace, and it happened after Ellen, and it happened yeah. after you know this wave of, um, you know, I don't, alternative is not the right word, but this wave of different um, presentations of family and love life, like modern family on and, television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, before Modern Family, I mean, right. people really think of, talk about the, um, the in the era of don't ask, don't tell, right? Like during Clinton's presidency um, and having Will and Grace on TV and then looking at legislation a generation later, mm-hmm. you know, how it shifted because people were in a totally different uh, mindset. So, I mean, that is because of the arts in, in many ways, right? I think that is an example that we can think about. And so it's like, if, if, theaters and dance companies and museums and, you know, all the cultural institutions make commitments to start shifting their leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, If people look at their boards, they look at their executive staff um, because it's not, it's also not as simple as putting black or Brown people in these positions, right? Those black and Brown people also have to be committed to this work. Right. Right. And that's something that often happens is that, you know, we put, um people it's almost like we try to solve this by putting the problems in black face and, and that black face is often literal. So mm-hmm. you put a black person in a position, but that black person is still a white supremacist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? That doesn't change the problem if they're not also committed to some kind of shift. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's why I'm like that's why it's not just as easy as giving up the seats. It really is has to be like a longer term commitment that is. From the board down fully invested you know if the staff is woke <laughs> right to like use that term and the board isn't then nothing is really going to change right right you know so i mean yeah so i i just um i don't i think some institutions will need to close and or shift mm-hmm. and that's true of nonprofits generally right like that's another thing with the nonprofit sort of complex is that organizations Often stay around long past their expiration date. You know, right. I think about um, I, I think about TV a lot, and there are some shows that are meant to go on forever. You know, right? Like a bad example is Law and Order, of course. But like Law and Order has been on for like a thousand years. Right. And then there are shows that do what they need to do for six seasons, and then they they close. Right. And I think that if we're truly honest about solving problems, which is what nonprofits are supposed to do, then most nonprofits should be planning to sunset.
1: Right because right? by the we're going to solve this problem. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should be planning to close up shop because you've solved the problem. Right. But what happens is we get employed, we get benefits, you know, we get this, we get that and then we become these sustaining institutions that are actually not that different than for-profit right. ones. It's just a different pool of funds. Totally.
1: Totally. <laughs> well, thank you Maori for doing this a second time and for being able to, like, uh, yeah, for flexibility and going a little bit deeper. I really appreciate it. Um, do you want to – are there any uh, – I know we did this last time, but I just want to make sure that we can capture everything. Um, is there anything in terms of, like, um, next steps or next next asks from this um, open letter that you guys wrote um, that either nonprofit leaders, nonprofit employees, or individual artists can – can do to help support this work
2: um well i mean we are uh working on expanding i think the, the website mm-hmm. um, to be a resource beyond signing this letter right because we've sent it um they're making their decisions so i mean that's no longer the push although i think that engagement with city hall needs to continue mm-hmm. um because what we found is that they were like, well, we didn't know this many people were concerned about this. So right. I think we've now opened up this line. We need to continue pressing on that line. And then there's also offering additional support. Mm-hmm. I'm, I imagine um, because we've got folks activated, uh, we will figure out how to build coalition and, and bring folks together. And so, you know, I think just sort of staying attuned for that um, and joining us is important. Um
1: so yeah. So more soon. I think uh, th- yeah. More <laughs> soon <laughs> is the answer. Yeah. Sounds great. I'm so looking forward to seeing what comes next. Um and being able to participate in it any way I can. Um thank you. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us. And um I hope that uh hope that the conversation continues among not just nonprofit leaders, but also among our audiences as well.
2: Sure, sure. And I I um I'm just trying to think. I feel like I, I don't, I hope that that was answering sort of what you were getting at. Um, oh my gosh, yes. I <laughs> okay, No. this was yeah, yeah, I just pad I feel, for
1: a larger conversation. I, I, I wasn't looking for anything in spe- like specifically.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just feel, I think overall, my um, gut feeling about this moment is just that we really have to be committed mm-hmm. to long-term shifts and it has to be, at every level. And I think the other thing that I wanted to consider is that um, how we pay people for their time, um, how we see other people generally and um, acknowledge their work and all of that, like it's all related, right? Like how you treat the security staff and the people who clean your building and interns, and, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Even if they are white, like, <laughs> right? right? Like I feel like that to me, that's sort of the intersectional approach that needs to happen so it isn't just about being anti-racist it's also about being feminist and it's also about being good stewards Mm -hmm. of the environment and it's also, you know what I mean all of these things are interrelated um and then that's just something that I want to make sure that I, I hope that people are considering because I think that um this moment feels fraught but for a lot of us it is not I wouldn't want to say it's not that different. I mean, it's obviously different, (laughs) you know, in quarantine working from home, but you know um, I'm kind of amazed at the number of people for whom uh, the murder of George Floyd is the moment that got them um, woken up. And I don't want to knock that because it only Mm -hmm. takes one moment, but I hope that people stay vigilant and stay like, you know, for instance, we should be pressing for the, arrest of Breonna Taylor's murders, right, uh, murderers um, in the same way. I mean, I mean, that is another example. We often have been uh, culturally responding to the murders of mm-hmm. cis men and we don't have the same cultural output for the murder of cis women mm-hmm. and trans folks, you know? So it's like that is another layer right. of this. <laughs> so it isn't just about anti-racism, it's also about anti-misogyny. Like, how do we combat right. all of that? Because- you know, this woman is murdered in her yep. sleep, you know, is a frontline worker. Like you cannot have a more sort of compelling uh, case. And we're not talking about it in the same way that we, you know, talk right. about George Floyd. And so that's that's just incredibly troubling. Um, so just sort of, I don't know, <laughs> just hoping that we kind of continue to, to unpack all of these things, but also get that it. I, I'm really troubled. Um, by being in conversations where it seems like folks think that there's some kind of fix that they can <sighs> Even if it's right. like a consultant, you know what I mean? Like, that is not the answer. The answer is like, we have to kind of unpack our own selves. And I think we just don't yeah. want to do that. That's the hard totally. work. Right? <laughs>